This episode of The Interchange is made possible by APSA and Timu. Welcome to Season 2 of The Interchange. Last season, we took a brave new step to amplify the voices of young people, discussing some of the most contentious issues facing Africa, from the challenges presented by the Fourth Industrial Revolution to gender parity in the workplace. Stay with us this season as we continue to unpack the narratives behind the narrative and the big ideas that are often missed in the day-to-day buzz. Coming to you live from Cliff Central Studios in the heart of Jersey, I am your host, Busim Kumbuzi. Now, in late 2018, Dar es Salaam's regional commissioner, Paul Makonda, issued a chilling directive. Give me their names, he said, of gay residents of Tanzania's largest city. My ad hoc team will begin to get their hands on them by next Monday. The threat to round up members of the city's LGBTIQ community in a country where same-sex acts are punishable by a life sentence left gay Tanzanians fearing for their lives. Now, in South Africa, where discrimination based on sexual orientation has been banned since 1996 and same-sex marriage has been legal since 2006, it was a disturbing reminder that life for gay people and other sexual minorities remains legally and socially far more difficult and often far more dangerous in much of the rest of Africa. Now, today we're asking ourselves what can be done to change attitudes, to change perceptions, to change laws in order to make sure that we uphold the human rights of the most vulnerable in society. And to debate the motion, this House believes that South Africa should condition its trade relations with other African countries on the recognition of LGBTQ rights and the treatment of queer bodies in those countries. I have in studio four brilliant debaters, starting off with Siposile Mbuli, who is a law student and a passionate patriot with a special uh, cause for untold stories and faces. I also have Atlehang Mulefe, who is a philosophy, politics and economics student and an LGBTIQ plus activist and debater. We also have Anam Azar, medical student, feminist activist and debater. And finally, Webster Morrison, an education student, one day leader, finalist and LGBTIQ activist and debater. Now, our expert for today's topic is Fumani Mabokwane. He's an an artist, uh, rather, first and foremost, and secondly, a social justice activist who does advocacy on social orientation and gender identity. Very important work. Now, my question for money for you, uh, you know, is why do you think that African societies persist in the violent othering of queer p- people? Uh, thank you so much for having me. And good, af- good afternoon. Hello, everybody. I think... At the root cause of everything, if we go back years and years, I think the big pun word that's happening on social media is 1652. Let's go back to 1652, Mm. where some a guy came to Africa and Mm. said, this is my land and I'm going to do as I like, when I like with the people that I bring to to so-called enhance Mm. or modernize Mm. Africa. And what came with that from that period up until now is that the colonial thinking Mm. of we have to erase certain bodies and oppress and subject Mm. people to unruly conditions Mm. um, so that we're able to have monopoly of how we treat people Mm. and Mm. have this firm power on these individuals. And the core people were firstly people of color. And then along the route, it became LGBTIQ plus Mm. people because 
um, they brought the ultra conservatism, and ultra conservatism, unfortunately, mm. was through Christian normativity to say there was, well, there will only be one form mm. of religion. That's Christianity, and Christianity says it's male and female relationships, nothing in between. When before that era of 1652, mm. there were African societies mm. that had LGBTIQ plus identified mm. people. Mm. So that thinking found its way into curriculums, found its way into teachings, found its way into the mindsets of Africans. And it was Media, a form. Business. Yes. Mm. And it was so ingrained that one of the discussions I had with my former classmates was that it was a form of survival that you had mm. to conform to survive. So mm. we had to isolate queer bodies mm. so that the moment a queer body was identified as like, mm. hey, to survive this particular system, I have mm. to other you. And forms of othering was also violence because violence mm. was seen as a form of obedience. Mm. So you force someone, you violate someone to make sure that they listen to you. Mm. And the moment they resist, you can intensify it. And we've seen mm. throughout history, violence has been the only way to mm. get people to conform. Mm. Um, also with that, I think that there's also been internalized phobia of... Yeah. Because there's some people in society who are like, deep down inside, maybe I could be. But because of what we've been taught, yeah. we've been told to invalidate those feelings. Yeah. And invalidating those feelings, that other form is, okay, let me take it out through a beating, through corrective mm. rape, through whatever forms of violence that there is. Mm. Um, and f generally, the fear of being outcast, because mm. that thinking is so ingrained. And you have leaders and heads of state who sometimes use that as their power as a form of power so that they can keep mm. a society repressed. Mm. So I think that's why um, there's this continued abuse and oppression mm. on the LGBTI community because you just have to find something and mm. use that one thing to, to hold on to power and destabilize a country, yeah. a country and a continent. Yeah. And in fact, you know, when you root it in um, colonialism, I mean, you look at uh, a meeting that was held by Commonwealth heads of government in London with Theresa May, essentially said that she was aware that the laws that were put in place in these countries to take away the human rights of members of the LGBT community were put in place by her own country, but that she was saying that they were wrong then and they are wrong now. And even though she said that there was an insistence um, and, and in particular disdain, um, even for, you know, um, the legitimacy of what she was saying by a number of countries, West Africa, Northern Africa, um, still presents lots of challenges. So I think this is going to be a heated debate, but also one that could potentially give us brilliant solutions for how we move forward. Um, but before we get started, let's go through the rules of the debate. We have four speakers. We're following the British parliamentary format. So two speakers are going to speak on each side. The first two are proposition and the last two are opposition. In terms of speaking order, prop one is going to speak first and op two is going to speak last. Each speaker has four minutes in between the first and the final minute. Other members of the opposing team can ask points of information. Guys, are you happy? Good to start? Awesome. I'm going to hand over the debate to our first speaker, Sipo Sikle. So we think when we speak about this, we have to make a clear line of what we mean by who we are not going to trade with and who we are going to trade with. What we are saying is countries that criminalize and perpetuate violence according to LGBTQIA plus rights. This necessarily doesn't mean countries that are completely silent. We say silence is rather uh, not a here nor there issue, but the perpetuation of violence is truly threatening to the livelihood of people. Um, we speak when we say violence, we speak of countries such as Nan Nigeria, Tanzania, Uganda, uh, most recently Egypt. 
Egypt. Um, countries that seem to be silent or rather lenient. We speak of countries such as Cape Verde. We to position it with South Africa as the complete other side, the one that's welcoming, the most welcome LGBTQIA um, country in the world, even though we do have our own issues. So one, we have to, before we even discuss anything of why we believe this needs to be implemented, we have to understand the basis for trade. Why do countries trade? We believe that countries trade for economical needs and to achieve self-determination. In the international relations field, we believe that they do this to also gain more power. We must say now that... the One minute up. The choice of doing, of streamlining this and of, of adding this extra requirement does not negate or change the possibility of achieving this. What it does is it moves the world order into more one direction and it uni- in the face of globalization, which is something we'll touch on, um, it sends one message and it, it further perpetuates democracy and human rights. So firstly, this is obviously an international debate, so we must acknowledge the perception of the international community. So in South Africa, South Africa is always acknowledged as the beacon of human rights. We came out of apartheid peaceful, avoided a civil war. It's really the only soft power we have. We don't have any military power. We don't hold financial power in Africa or in the international community. So it's important to acknowledge that it would be a step that would make sense within South Africa to take. Mm-hmm. It is a step that South Africa rightfully can do. Um, in the eye, our second point, in the eye of globalization, where such things do occur, um, it's important to now force other countries to get onto the wagon. It's important to now say we will no longer feed the beast of your oppression, of your violence, of your um, mistreatment of bodies. Speaker? Knock yourself out. Uh, Quickly, just tell us how this conditioning would look like. Sure thing. So it's basically just necessarily in Africa, there are many, we're all um, rich in resources and in... uh, Ability to do things So this would look like In rather Instead of saying Not necessarily you right now Maybe this fellow country That can provide us With the same thing It's not saying Never ever again It's not a permanent thing It's True. catch up To the rest of the world Because many African countries Do struggle with their Human rights We watch human rights Violations happen all the time And that brings me To my third point Is that We need to remove The monopoly of power Human rights is Human rights are important And we can no longer be the Allow for human rights violations We cannot allow Fellow Africans To be shot down To be murdered and to be killed We cannot further allow That African bodies And queer African bodies okay. At this And uh, not now um, Queer bodies are allowed to um, One minute left Be oppressed in this way uh, We believe that When we force countries To recognize human rights By pinching their pockets it, it It's real change And when we speak of LGBTQIA rights We're speaking about People of rights We're not asking for Magical rights Such as unicorns We're speaking Basic human rights So by adding The simple um, implementation The simple trade clause This would then mean Other human rights Are then given effect We see in um, In Cape Ver- No Yeah In Egypt, where they, to silence, to further silence LGBTQ rights, they silenced the media. They, they started attacking journalists. They started attacking people who were speaking out against this. We say this is not right. This is right to media. Access to right is a democratic thing that has become an international, um, landmark for democracy. And we believe that this is something that should be, this should occur. And it's for these four reasons that we believe that that South Africa should pioneer and not trade with countries that mistreat and violently perpetuate homophobia on the African continent. Thank you, Sipositli. Your time is up, right on time. We're now handing over to the first speaker of opposition to oppose. Here, here. Two points of contextual clarity. Firstly, we think that your policy is incredibly Afrophobic because they keep talking about how yeah, African yeah. states are the ones who are the one are the ones who their policy is targeting and the ones who are the most um 
homophobic. However, we think that there's countries like China, like Russia, countries like the US that's incredibly transphobic that you don't have any problem with and don't include in your policy. Secondly, they try to claim that South Africa is a beacon of hope for LGBT rights. Completely false. We think even though we may have legislatively Mm. accepted things like gay marriage, we think we still have the highest corrective rape statistic in the world. We still held conventions in our own country talking about pan-Africanism in which people like Mugabe and Gaddafi claimed that being homosexual is un-African. And so we think here, this brings us to our first point, which is essentially that we don't trust the South African state or states in general to create policies for the the advancement of queer rights. We think even if we look at the history of the ANC in the 1980s, they were incredibly homophobic. The only reason they included things like gay marriage in their constitution is because of pressures and rather because of concessions that they had to make in order to form alliances or because of pressures from people like the UN. This brings us to our first point, which is that often when states are the ones who are involved in progressing queer rights, they do it purely for political gain. And what you get then is a result of a situation where it's very opportunistic, right? So if you look at, for example, Israel and Palestine, a lot of the time Israel justifies its human rights abuses on Palestine by claiming that Palestine is is not queer friendly or is homophobic, right? And the problem with that is that when Israel then goes and bombs Palestine, it doesn't care about like queer Palestinians or female Palestinians, it ultimately just ends up oppressing that country. This means that often queer rights have been used as a tool to oppress other countries for a country's specific political gain, yeah, which yeah. is why we don't support a policy which empowers these kinds of attitudes. But secondly, we think it's been used as a way of window dressing, right? Classic example, South Africa sure. again, where we have legislatively accepted queer marriage or gay marriage, but we don't, allow, but we don't have any robust mechanisms or our courts don't even protect people who have faced violence. Rather, when people okay. speak about their violence, the South African state simply says, oh, well, we're the most progressive like people in the world because we legalized gay marriage first. This then brings us on to two ideas. Either this policy is effective in that the sanctions are effective or it's ineffective. We think, firstly, it's more likely to be ineffective as a form of a sanction. But secondly, even if it's effective, we still reject it. Why is this the case? We think, firstly, it's an ineffective policy because What's likely to happen is South Africa is likely to be isolated from other African countries because under your mechanism, most African countries are going to be counted in this category. What this means is it means that these African countries are still able to go to countries like China or, or people within their own trading blocks, which means you don't get an effective sanction in the first place. But secondly, we think that even if you're able to bring about a legislative change, it's unlikely to trickle down to an actual change for people on the ground. One Classic example is South Africa. But last year's talk about even if it's effective, right? We think even if it's effective, it's still a bad policy because what's likely to happen is that even if you de- de- uh, destabilize a state by sanctioning it, you're still going to get more people in the queer community who are going to be targeted, right? Another example of this is women in Arab states that were sanctioned because of the treatment of female rights, yeah, right? Yeah. We think that queer people on the ground are going to become bigger targets because they're going to be seen as the reason why their state is being punished. What would we rather have? We think that we would rather have change that is spearheaded by individuals on the ground who are involved with these communities, that even if that change comes, it's not seen as something that comes from abroad, which is the perception that exists about queerness in general in Africa. It is seen as something that is community-based and something that the people on the ground want. But secondly, we think that we would rather have change as spearheaded by people on the ground because over and above the fact that it's seen as something that's part of the community, we think it's more likely to be something that is effective and something that is not likely to be abused by states in order to push their own political agendas. And I'm very proud to oppose. Your time is up.
Thank you. I'm now going to hand over to Atlehang, who is the proposition speaker too, to close the case here. here. You're always going to get responses like it's not going to be effective when you try to implement a policy. Even like with Anam's speech, the entire speech is in hinge upon the idea that even if you still try to make it constitutionally correct for homosexual people to exist, they're still going to get backlash from society. We think under our case, we're still going to have measures to hold individuals accountable. So recourse for homosexual people can still happen. Unlike in a situation where constitutionally this is something that's not even accepted, it means that you aren't even able to get the kinds of things that they are talking about. Secondly, we think even if states are using this as a political gain, you also need to understand that even if trade is for economic development, it's also for like international perception and how you portray yourself as a state, which means that you are more inclined to align yourself with a state that follows the same principle principles or that have the same laws as you. So we think it's okay for South Africa to decide to disengage in these countries that have laws against homosexual people. Even in instances where we're going to have a conversation about how people from the underground should actually be purporting for for these, uh, for these laws. We think that they don't necessarily have the social capital to even speak One about their up. own struggles and to even yes. have individuals here. Yeah. So it means even if you're still going to have like an, like, Activate or like an, an LGBTQI movement in Uganda, you're still not going to get the kind of recourse that you're talking about if this isn't something that is like acceptable by the state or this isn't something that is consti- constitutionally accepted by their own government. So it means that you, you are not necessarily going to get the same kinds of benefits that you're talking about. We think here, even at a point at which you're going to use the LGBTIQ community as a token to get access to a lot of things, we think tokenizing individual is okay, For especially sure. at, a, at, a, at, a, at the benefits of showing that they have laws protecting them and they are allowed to be protected. We think here currently, you also need to understand that there are a lot of like African states that are decriminalizing the act of, of saying that homosexuality is a, shame, is a shame. Currently, Botswana also decided to decriminalize this yeah, because yeah. we yeah, think yeah. what you need to understand here is that the more you portray yourself and you align yourself with liberal states that try to protect the LGBTI that. community, that's when you're going to get the kinds of development or that's when you're going to trade with this uh, like superpower countries that they're talking about. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, all these other countries are willing to trade with South Africa and Africa in most instances is because they have the same principles and that's why they want to align themselves in the country that has those laws. Secondly, to the second response to this, we think even in instances where we have to undermine like the sovereignty of a state and say that yes, you have the power to govern yourself, but we think we're not only going to allow to trade with you on basis that you don't want to change your constitution. We think this aren't necessarily important, especially in South Africa, as Sipo speaks about how we don't necessarily have effective constitution and South Africa is the only state that does have that effective constitution. We think we can necessarily infringe upon a sovereignty of a state if there's gross human rights violation. Before I continue, take it on. Please name me a state that has gone and actually created policy in other states out of a genuine interest for individuals on the ground and not to further okay, their yeah, own yeah. political Politics games. is a, date, a dirty game. We're not going to argue here that every time when a state goes into like into like when it goes into trade with another state it's always for like genuine intention it's always a matter of trying to create something for yourself so this means South Africa for instance as like a country that is a figurehead especially in the African continent it means that they have the capital to actually change like the laws of other African states so it means even if the intention is not genuine and it's for political gain but you think ultimately if we're able to have laws protecting homosexual people we're fine with that Mm. their case is the worst because then it means that 
even constitutionally you don't accept homosexual individual it means that you don't necessarily uh, protect them in any case it means that they're still not going to be allowed to self-actualize you need to understand that in most African states there's a dire situation when it comes to the LGBTI community these are individuals that can't necessarily self-actualize these yeah. are individuals that are oftentimes ostracized from society if you're going to streamline trade on basis that these countries change their laws mm. we think you are better for the LGBTIQ community yes. as opposed to consistently having a response and saying that the policy would not necessarily work. Okay, your time is up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for that speech. I'm now going to hand over to Webster to close the opposition case and the debate here, here. Panel, there's a few strategic flaws in Atlahang's speech. Firstly, they tell you um, an idea on political gain and the idea that's uh, the perception of the international community. At a point where we tell you that the international community is something in process of decolonization that's diametrically opposed to what the African Union stands for or what the Africa, what Africa stands for, we think that in, we win this debate just there. But secondly, Atlehang obviously wants to get some sort of benefit, but they never tell you what type of benefit you get. For sure. Anam already tells you that on the ground, even in countries where homophobia is quite persistent, we tell you that on the ground, there are organizations that make landmark types of, of changes within these societies, i.e. Angola, i.e. Botswana. We tell you that in those instances, ladies and gentlemen, you don't necessarily need to sanction the entire country or sanction the entire government um, for, 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 for these benefits to happen. We think that these um, organizations do a great job at that. Because we've already told you the pragmatic and why the outcome is something that's co- completely false, we're going to tell you why, on principle, we think that this also can't One minute One, up. We think that South Africa has the obligation to care. Firstly, because we think that isolationist trading would be completely worse off for countries such for, for African states such as Uganda. Why do we think this? Because we think that the po- modern political diaspora is of, 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 of a nature that there's a great disconnect between what political heads say and what society does on the ground. We've already told you why um, society, uh, organizations on the ground is something that we value better here. But secondly, we think that there's a queer tokenization happening here, not now, Atlehang. We think that here... You don't do anything better by cutting off things like maize and oil and things that go to these countries. Why is this important? Because we think that by decolonization, by decolonizing these institutions, we think that it works completely different. We think that we, we think that Africa detests um, 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 queer decolonization because of the idea that it, is, it comes from the West as a prescription in a moment. We think that that prescription is one that is un-African and we completely agree with that. We think that when Africa decolonizes queer, queer phobia for itself, it can only do that through South Africa that has already naturalized queerness within itself. We think that that interaction is something that we value specifically, one, because... Um, because South Africa is the only one or the first one to have um, naturalized queerness within the space quickly. So you need to have a conversation and decolonize the notion that homosexuality is un-African for all the benefits to exist. We say for shame. We say if you sanction this country, you can even allow for that conversation to exist. What is your problem exactly? No, you needed to tell us how those laws would exist under your mechanism at a point where you sanction and cut off that conversation from a country that accepts queerness towards a country that does not accept queerness you failed within your specific debate. Why do we tell you that state sustenance through trade is something that is important? Because one, one are violating the right to life, firstly. Because how 
regardless of how problematic yeah, yeah. you are, ladies and gentlemen, you deserve to uh, interact. One, you deserve to interact with your political head. You deserve to interact with other states. But moreover, you just deserves. We, we think that queers here are likely to be worse off because the conditions that you are placing them in there are, is likely to put queers in a space wow. where queers yeah, yeah. are going to be tokenized or be targeted much more the way Anam has told you. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the speech, we tell you that we don't want a space where queer people are being tokenized or targeted based on revenge because the country is at a worse off end. We think that highly religious institutions that do not accept queerness are likely to target them too because of indoctrinated religious dogma. We are very proud we've won this debate. Clearly, queerness is safe under our mechanism. <laughs> Fumani, initial thoughts. Wow. Okay. Wow. Um, thank you for those heavy debates. Well, wow, guys. Didn't expect that. <laughs> um, I'm on the fence. Truth, yeah. truth yeah. be told, I'm yeah. really on the fence because on the one side, um, I agree with the whole soft power. South Africa does have that power within the continent to make those changes. We've seen that before. We've seen our president recently go to Lesotho to broker peace agreements there and been to other African states. But I'm also on the side of the opposing team because, unfortunately, where we where we are in the in the continent is that you hit if you hit one person, then you the other person does get affected. So it's literally it's a doomed if you do, doomed if you don't situation. So I think what we need to work towards, personally, I think we need to work towards the same, the a state of. As with South Africa, we have the power to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. These are our conditions. We won't put any kind of sanctions on you as of yet, but let's work towards the final solution, which includes people on the ground, getting people on the ground. There are organizations that have the resources, the tools, the knowledge, etc. Bring those two together so that in, at a point where South Africa, if South Africa feels that, look, we're not getting anywhere, then maybe at a later stage, then impose the kind of sanctions that uh that has been a pro- that's been proposed by the the prop side but to institute sanctions immediately at all around go we have to think about the general quality of life and i think that's what we see with other countries when the us puts in sanctions we see what happens to other people because there's a political fight between the heads of state but what about the people on the ground so i think i'm still uh, on the fence of mm. Take five, take fifty percent here. Take fifty percent there. Let's bring it together to make it a hundred percent. Because both salute, both can't be one hundred percent in effect without risking the one being sold out per se or being jeopardized for the other. I mean, Atlahang, you were burning the the entire time during Webster's speech, especially towards the end there. Uh, what would you have said if you could respond? I think my first response would be that we consistently say that South Africa has a moral obligation to act when something yeah. happens in other African countries. But in this particular matter, you're denying South Africa the legitimacy then to act and, and sanction these countries. Because the conversation about queer rights has been happening for a very long time mm. where individuals have been fighting for the LGBTI community. Even when the queer crackdown happened, people decided, they decided to sanction like Tanzania mm. and a lot of people pulled out of trade. The significance of that was the political statement to 
say that we're never going to align ourselves with a country that does not protect uh. the rights of the LGBTI community. Mm. Sure, in the short term, people are going to suffer because we're sanctioning a country, but we think in the long run, we mm. force the change to happen. Because mm. if you're not going to do anything and you're consistently going to say that, let's have a conversation, mm. let's change Mugabe, let's change like Munangagwa mm. and those kinds of things, that isn't necessarily going to happen. Because mm. even in South Africa, the LGBTI community took like the hard stance in saying that you're going to make it constitutional constitutional and it's going to happen today in mm. uganda the movements that happen there don't necessarily have the amount of power to mm. change the things that webster and anam are talking mm. about anam I, someone recently said that queer people everywhere are responsible for queer people anywhere mm. and if someone said that a large part of the arguments that both you and webster have made don't honor the statement you know, how would you come back from that, especially in light of what Atlahang has just said? So I think one of the things that we were quite clear about that I don't think was engaged in this yeah. debate is the intentions of states. And mm. I think that if South Africa is a country that genuinely understands and cares about queer bodies, then why are queer bodies so unsafe in a state in which it's constitutionally mm. protected? And I think that goes back to saying that I think states in general, when they impose their sanctions, they may claim to do it in the name of like queer bodies or women, but I think that they're actually just doing it to perpetuate a political agenda. And mm. I think this brings me back to saying that I think when you talk about people being problematic or when you talk about like like states needing to impose punishments on other states, it's just that some states are more or rather easier targets in that situation. Mm. That being a lot of weaker African states or like in the global context, a lot of Muslim states mm. have been very susceptible to countries like the US mm. or in this case, countries like South Africa going to them and being like, well, you don't care about queer people. So like we're going to destabilize your mm. state. And I think the truth is that those countries were never actually trying to protect queer people on the ground anyway. They were just trying to destabilize those states, but they're trying to like wear these badges of, oh, we care about queer people. We care, we care about women. And I think that's my main issue is that I just think that when you push, so if it's queer people caring about queer people, I'm 100% for that. But I don't believe that our state or any state in the world right now has got the genuine understanding of queer bodies or has got genuine representation of queer bodies in its cabinets to make those kinds of calls. And that's why I think that using the uh, the the root of state intervention mm. is one that is going to be disingenuous and one that is likely to be abused. But can you see why, I mean, Webster, you can also come in here, why state intervention is particularly important. Um, if you look at the EU and the trade that they do with Uganda, it's a trade deal of about 460 million pounds a year. That being frozen on condition that you decriminalize um, um you know same sex um marriage and that sort of thing is 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 a powerful step look busy um i think that's it's a very dangerous step i think mm. that um what prop was advocating for is completely dangerous one they needed to then prove why um, a policy like that or a change of that sort would filter down to society because that hate is a reflection of society or comes from mm. people in society. So they needed to show why um, at the point where Zimbabwe was sanctioned, why did those things not change at that point in time? There was no, there was no active change. 
those people, it, the, the country rather deteriorated to a point where people just could not live anymore or just can't live anymore. And I think it's incredibly dangerous to use queerness, um, a vulnerable group of people in the country that are already targeted. And it's dangerous to use them as, hey, mm, if you can accept the these people, um, you can get bread. Mm. And that's really problematic mm. because it's dangerous at a point where my livelihood is dependent on whether or not I like you. And it is just something that I can't do because as a homophobic or a bigot, I can't like you. So what do I do? I eliminate you and I get what I want. And that is completely dangerous for me um, as a queer man mm. to think about. Sure. Any response? I fully agree the arguments that are posed. I just think bodies are dying now. Yeah. How, mm. For how long are we going to have talks about talks about talks? Mm. I always argue that apartheid ended not because it stopped matter. Sanctions. It, it, mm. it, it, sanctions. Mm. America left. People left. It was. It became difficult to function now. We, and for how, how much more conversations are we going to have? Protests are we going to have? Prides we're going to have? Mm. It's... Yes, there is going to be a problem, but it's also when you criminalize the act of being problematic, you, in a sense, there's an hour recourse. But mm-hmm. is, is prop, is prop not, and, and Fumani can come in here as well, is prop not, um, you know, prioritizing decriminalization and, and creating this silver bullet or this magic wand, whereas, you know, as Anama said many, many times in South Africa, you've got this wide recognition of queer rights, but on the ground, members of the LGBTIQ community continue to face violent oppression day to day. I mean, I saw a video yesterday on Twitter um, just taken off. You know, the person was very happy to post it, the same person that um, was the perpetrator. And things like that, you know, go unchecked largely by society, but also unchecked by even our legal um, framework and our legal institutions and our justice system. So, you know, is, is your argument not, you know, um, placing emphasis on the wrong thing, uh, especially with regards to this way up that we ultimately have to look up to, uh, you know, do we want positive court rulings like the one we saw in Botswana or do we want significant shift in public perception? And can I add to just as a question, are you saying that at some, it is going to get uncomfortable? In terms of change happens, it's gonna, the sanctions will happen, people will be affected. Are we pushing for that to happen? Because I wouldn't want a state where people, as much as we're fighting for one cause, then the, every, Many other people every other, pe- then other people do suffer. And are we setting a precedent to say that only a particular, so we're gonna deal with our issue by issue? Mm. analysis to say are we doing if it's queer then what happens to women rights what happens and i think for both teams what is what is the thought about intersectionality with regards to queer rights mm. i think we can accept that like south africa is not perfect even though constitutionally we do accept homosexual people but they're still like there are still many cases of corrective rape and things like that. But we think that there's some sort of recourse when you have laws that can hold these individuals mm. accountable. As opposed to when you go to like tournaments like PANS where you interact with those individuals and people from Uganda, they don't even have a conversation about queerness in their own community because this is, it's a taboo to have that specific con- conversation. I think sometimes we need to move into a time where we have uncomfortable conversations mm. about these kinds of things because the more we're going to say that you're outing queer individuals, the more 
more we're going to say that you're putting them in danger. We understand that it's, we're like putting their lives in danger, but we think this is a conversation that needs to happen and they also need to get that sort of representation, especially when it comes to this. So we think it's important to use core individuals specifically to, for these things to happen. Cause we think in those countries, even though like they are intersectional identities, you're a black queer woman and you're more inclined to be affected by the system mm. of governance. But we think specifically using the LGBTI community, cause we've been using the, the idea of saying that we need to trade, streamline trade along the lines of having a country that has 50% representation of women in parliament, for example. So there hasn't really been a conversation on the LGBTI community. So that's why we think it's important then to streamline these kinds of trade to this. So we think even if like the public perception and the fact that individuals don't necessarily accept queer individuals, we think this is something that is gradually like this gradual change in terms of like the acceptance of homosexual people. We have to accept that like gradually, especially in other African countries that are consistently decriminalizing the act of saying that homosexuality is a scene. We need to understand that like the gradual change and accept the fact that like it can still happen even when we sanction countries and force them to change their laws. Atlahang, you know, ended her speech by saying that the treatment of uh, LGBTI people is deplorable, and she was absolutely right. Imprisoning gays, imprisoning lesbians for their sexuality is an unacceptable violation of basic human rights. And I'm sure that we can all agree that swift and meaningful action is needed, particularly to incidents that threaten the human rights of LGBTI people. I usually close the debates, but to honor the gravity of this conversation, I'm going to go around the table and ask for a closing statement from everyone at the table. Assuming that the people who have the power to make swift and meaningful change are listening to this podcast, what would you say? Fundamentally, if someone's happiness does not get in the way of your own personal happiness and the achievement of your country, why stop it? Mm. For me, the LGBTQI community just boils down to that. Mm. It's allowing someone to self-actualize and mm. achieve happiness, and that doesn't affect your country fundamentally. I think it's important to allow individuals to self-actualize, but also you need to understand that if even if you're still oppressing like homosexual people, it, it does not necessarily mean that like there's anything that's going to change in terms of your economy. You're still going to be that mm-hmm. African country mm. that's poor. So it means that you oppress those individuals and you don't get like the benefits that they're talking about. Mm. I think that obviously it's incredibly important that we do have more conversations about how to make the world a better place for queer bodies. But I also think that central to those conversations has to be a genuine concern for queer bodies. And I think a lot of the time when we talk about queer issues, we get lost in kind of jargon or competing with each other to say, I know the most about queer politics. But at the core, it's about talking about how policies and legislation affects the queer person on the ground and how we can make a world better, a better place for them specifically. Um. I think there needs to be a stop in how individuals perceive politics and the politicization of queer people. I think that um, there needs to be a stop. uh, There needs to be a representation of queer individuals and they need to speak as queer individuals. I think that um, Mm. the reason why there's such a big disjunct is because of the idea that people are speaking on behalf of the Mm. queer community, the Mm. idea that no Mm. one understands and no one has the lived experiences to... um, to interpret what a queerness would look like in a political space or what a queerness ought to look like in a space where we've been queerphobic and transition into a queer friendly. Wow, that's a tough act. Wow. (laughs) Um, I think I'll just like to put uh, what the 
the two groups have said is the fact that we should allow people to self-actualize and be who they are in a, and be and ensure that our environment and enables that. But at the same time, we should ensure that it's those people who self-actualize who do speak on the issues that affect them. So as queer bodies, we should be the ones to go to parliament and say, this is what our issues are mm-hmm. and not some parliamentarian who has some sort of an idea and then they present it and it comes out in the worst way. Mm. And then the policy, the policy that comes out or the dialogue or mm. the interventions that come out is a perception of and not the lived experience mm. of. Mm. So I think it's important that we create the environment that a person can feel like I can come out and speak of, but at the same time, I can speak for everybody else because I have had that experience mm. of what it means. And please, parliament, parliamentarians, politicians, please give us a chance to speak mm. generally. And this is not just mm. queer rights, particularly on every single issue. Speak, listen to the people on the ground and what they mm. have to say. So that when you create your policies or your sanctions or your economies, etc., it is all inclusive and not just a manifesto that is on a piece of paper. And then when you go to parliament, it's something else. Mm-hmm. What an opening to season two of the interchange. Um, I think if there's anything that I've learned and that I hope anyone else listening to this podcast has learned today is that this is a real issue. There are real lives concerned and we need to hear real voices from the ground. I hope that you've enjoyed um, episode one of the interchange and see you next time. This was another thought-provoking debate made possible by APSA and Simung, amplifying the voices of young people. The Interchange, seeing Africa through a youthful lens.